This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant, temporarily based in East Hampton, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Center, <laughs> the Center for Cyberethics is the producer of the Cybertraps podcast, although it's really just the two of us eating chat. <laughs> In any case, the Center for Cyberethics is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Well, this episode and the next few episodes of the podcast are going to be about our time in at the PPI conference in Boise, Idaho. So as we are chatting here, I hope you enjoy it and enjoy the uh, people that we were able to talk with. This was the Professional Practices Institute put on by the National Association of State Directors of Teacher and Educator Certification. And this is a similar um, conference that Fred and I went to last year in Oklahoma City as well. So hope you enjoy this and the following episodes that are going to be like it. 
Since we were recording in a public place, there are some times where the background noise gets a little much, but hopefully we've done enough to take care of that and it's not too annoying. And thanks for your patience with that. Why don't you start by telling us your name and what you do? Sure. I record yet. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Matt Drange. Um, I'm an investigative reporter at Business Insider. And uh, I'm not typically an education reporter, but uh, at the moment, am, and have spent several months and several years at this point, um, uh, reporting on uh, sexual abuse and grooming in high schools. Hmm. Which, of course, is intimately related to the cyber yes. world and to social media and so forth. And just as an aside, Matt, I think you're our first reporter on the podcast. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Happy to be number one. <laughs> well, and in that context of the work that you described, um, you made a fairly big splash recently with a major article. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote an article um, that was published earlier this year in, in May. Um, that was about my high school journalism teacher um, and how he had for a period of uh, at least 20 years uh, groomed uh, students, female students for sex and got wow. away with it. He, um, uh, the article uh, was several years in the making and we can get into it a little bit if you'd like, but um, when uh, I was able to reach um, one of his youngest, most recent uh, survivors in 2019, and uh, impressed upon her that she was not the only one. She decided that she, at that, at that point, she had been covering for him. Um, there was a, a district investigation that was sparked because of my reporting, and she had been covering for him, and at that point, she decided that she was done lying, um, and she began cooperating with the district investigation. He uh, resigned at the end of that year in 2019. Um, and then my story was published earlier this year, um, and after that, um, many, many more victims have come forward, um, not just with this particular teacher, but lots of others at the district. I think the word um, we use is floodgates, honestly. Yes, I think that <laughs> wow. is accurate. Yeah, it was, it was quite the response. Uh, uh, Nine million people read the story. I heard from people across the country, across the world, um, who said, yes, me too, I can relate to this. And I think what people could relate to, um, perhaps more than anything else, wasn't, wasn't that this person had done this terrible thing. It was unfortunately all too common. Um, but it was the way in which I told the story through the things that this person did to ingratiate themselves in the community first, mm -hmm. to lay the foundation. Um, that isn't something that's often covered when the press writes about these stories. It's usually more in the, what I would call, uh, cops and courts context. Person is caught, this is the punishment, this is their name, it is now in the public record because they got caught doing this terrible thing, move on. Um, mine was more about the culture of how this happened, why, um, and I'm, I'm continuing to report on that. Well, and you're here at the PPI conference <coughs> with Jethro and myself, and yesterday we had a chance to hear from a survivor, Tiffany Franco and her dad, Richard, and they were talking about the way in which a popular teacher will groom the community and then groom the family and then groom the victim. Yep. And is that consistent with what you found? 100%, yeah. Uh, what I found at my school, and, and now I'm currently reporting on this type of behavior across the country, it is remarkable how I could literally substitute names of places and people and the contours of the story would be almost identical. Uh, it, I, I, that for me was eye-opening. It, it is as though there is this handbook, this, this playbook that is being executed. It is stunning. Well, in fact, online, <laughs> it probably is. It, probably somewhere. Now, the saying that, though, gives me some hope that I have not felt a lot, to be honest, because if everybody's doing essentially the same thing, 
then that could prove a, a path to stopping it from happening. That we could see warning signs and say, okay, this we need to pay attention and be aware that this person is behaving the same way. Do you think there's any validity to that? That there's hope? Well, um, that there's hope, yes. <laughs> but more that, there, that this a could path to, a path to stopping to it. To stopping it. I don't know. I, I think it's a great question. I, I, um, I've thought about this a lot. Um, I, I think it is, while I agree, it is very clear what is happening and, and, and it is so, so common and similar. It is also very difficult to stop for a mm -hmm. lot of reasons, including ones that Tiffany and her father talked about. And it, I'm interested in the systemic issues here, and there are a lot of them, I think, to unpack, um, both societally, both sort of the meat and potatoes almost of this conference with different states having different rules, et cetera. Mm -hmm. it, it's the other thing that I was just talking to somebody about a minute ago, even in big cities, districts are sort of their own little town, their mm -hmm. own little community. It's very and that, true. And that can Thief make it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that can make what on paper should be a great first line of defense, mandated reporters, really complicated. And so I, I don't, I don't, I, I would like to think, I, I have optimism too, but, but it is so, so complicated. And one thing I've seen a lot at my school and at other schools is that, uh, and a lot of people have impressed upon me, including survivors who are in their 40s and 50s, that kids today are different. Um, mm -hmm. They're different, they have different tools. Um, kids who are, who are starting high school now have sort of come to, to awareness in the Me Too movement. They almost, they, they don't know a pre that. And that is, that is huge. Um, they have the technological tools to record, capture this kind of behavior in a way that previous generations didn't. And there's just, I think, a collective sense of, of what is and what isn't okay that has changed over time. Um, on, on the negative side, in response to that, because I think this is a great debate, yeah. is that they're also sexualized at much younger ages, and then there's the influence of online adult content in terms of what they know and how they view relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has caused problems as well. It's obviously absolutely not an excuse, but it's a factor that plays into uh, these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I have some hope, um, but uh, it's just so complicated. And that, that's what I'm trying to unpack now with, with, with my next story. So I'm looking at um, abuse across the country. I've requested lots of records, disciplinary records, settlement agreements from 500 school districts across the country, and just trying to get my hands a little bit around the scope of this in a, in a macro level. We have so many people here who are looking at it through a very specific lens. I'm trying to kind of look at it a, you know, from a 3,000 foot level, which is hard. Well, before we move into that, because I think that's yeah. gonna be a great second half, the one, the one thing I wanted to um, have you talk a little bit about with respect to your first article, mm -hmm. is you've got an individual who obviously was offending over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole conversation to be had about the covering up and so forth. But for the purposes of this show and our listeners, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how technology crept into the story. Mm -hmm. You know, were there, were the, did you identify points where the grooming techniques, for instance, mm. began to change and how? Mm. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I mean, um, so some of the earliest uh, victims in the story um, uh, graduated uh, from, from my high school in the early 2000s um, when they didn't have cell phones. The evidence of the relationship that they kept is very different from the most recent 
victim, the one who I mentioned earlier, who, who decided she was done lying for him in 2019, you know, for her, it was text messages. It was uh, voicemail messages. We included in the story a series of, of six voicemail messages that he left for her that were him in his own words describing him obstructing the district's investigation and my own. Wow. And that ultimately, I think, probably more than anything else, contributed to his resignation. In the end, um, the district official who oversaw the investigation told me that um, essentially that they didn't prove out any of the things that I demonstrated in my article as far as the relationships that he had with students and students and, and, and recent graduates. What they were able to prove out through primarily the voicemail messages and, and text messages and other photos and things like that, digital evidence, was that he obstructed the investigation, and that was enough mm. to uh, force the cover him up out. is worse than the crime. In, in <laughs> this case, yeah, for 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 them, I, I think so. It, yeah. it, or it was more gettable than yeah. the crime. You yeah, know? Absolutely. Um, that that is just so disappointing. It I, it really is because yeah. that the reason why he resigned is because they found out that he was obstructing, and so there's no seemingly no consequences for his really bad behavior which was grooming and then having sexual um relations with these young women that's well, awful he so as part of his um his um uh separation and settlement agreement he uh, can no longer work in the district in any capacity he uh, had his credential revoked in california um because of uh misconduct is the language they used um, he can reapply for it um there's nothing uh legally preventing him from doing so and so there were some consequences in that sense, um, but I, I think a lot of people, a lot of, of readers who um, read the story, who heard those voicemails, and then got to the end of the article where I said what I just said, and, and, and the other thing I should mention too here is that this, the settlement agreement includes, like almost all of them do that I've seen, uh, non-disclosure language. Mm -hmm. And so if anybody calls, if you were to call the district right now and ask anything about this teacher, they would give you content neutral uh, material dates of employment salary that's it that i think upset quite a lot of people Which, because they knew a lot more than that yeah that is a very typical thing to do in education and any principal because i was a principal any principal who calls for a reference or hr person who calls for a reference knows that if all they say is these are the dates of employment then that's a red flag right and essentially you should probably steer clear so the absence of information itself is enough to trigger. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so yep. Uh, whenever, whenever someone calls me, mm -hmm. I never tell them when they worked for me because, because I don't want them to think mm. that I'm saying something like that. Interesting. Uh, and so they say, well, when did this person work for you? And I say, I think it was these years, but you have it on their application, right? right. Like you don't need that from me, right. but that's a way for me to ensure that Interesting. like there's a very rigid way that people respond when somebody's had something negative. And like, while I think that there should be some non-disclosure to protect people's privacy, at the same time, I think we need to be honest about why this person should never work around kids again. Mm -hmm. And often there is a question on, on references of, can you think of any reason why this person should not be working mm -hmm. around kids? Which is all well and good, but nobody is really going to put into writing, I believe that they are a sexual predator <laughs> and like, and then have that person come back later and say, you put this on here and it's, you know, out of school. And I'm so. suing you. Like, exactly. Sideways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see whether non-disclosure agreements begin to weaken in light of some of the court 
cases involving mm -hmm. the former president, mm -hmm. you know, where he's lost a couple of really significant NDA enforcement attempts. Mm -hmm. So I'll be, you know, that's kind of a separate side yeah. legal issue, but it is yeah. interesting. Um, I, I, I can add, too, on the, 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 the digital uh, front, too, I should mention. So, yeah. um, you know, in this case, in the case of my teacher, uh, uh, Facebook um, was a big component of his relationships with students in general. Mm. Um, it's how I communicated with him as a, as a, don't remember when I became friends with him on the platform, but either my senior year or shortly thereafter, and how lots of other students communicated with him. Um, it's where he, um, when he found out that I was working on this story, first reached out to me um, huh. and, you know, uh, uh, reminded me of my relationship with him and how much he cared about my family, those sorts of things. Mm. Um, Which is precisely what we were talking about at the top of the show. I mean, yeah. 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 The key bit of, of evidence that sort of kicked off the district's investigation were a series of, of I think most people refer to them as sex messages that he had exchanged with uh, a student. It was unclear when they were exchanged, if she was still a student or not. They were undated, but they were Facebook Messenger messages. Mm. And um, yeah. when those came to light and students um, actually posted them to social media, which is a whole other thing, like to Twitter, um, <laughs> right. that is when uh, he was, he was uh, uh, put on leave and they began investigating, was because of a piece of digital evidence. And I talk about in the story some of the older uh, survivors from the early 2000s. They do not have have those things for them it was diaries it was mm -hmm. i told my friend on this date those right those so that's of kind of the ratification that they're offering yeah corroboration um that i think leads us really nicely oh wait i have one more question oh. i'm sorry it doesn't lead us in no <laughs> it almost does when when did you first suspect and what made you decide to write this story oh sure yeah i probably should have should have said that no, at the beginning um i uh started working this story in, in 2017 when I read an article uh, by a reporter, a friend of mine, called Benefit of the Doubt. And it was about a teacher in Oregon who, for many years, had gotten the benefit of the doubt when it came to red flags with his relationships with students. And I read that story, this was in 2017, as the Me Too movement was really taking root. And all I could think was, is there somebody like that at my high school? And I had this feeling of deja vu. I didn't know who, I didn't mm. know it would be him. I just thought, there's probably someone in my high school I'm a, you know, pessimistic reporter. There's probably someone like this in my high school. I should try and find out who. Um, and so I submitted a bunch of records requests, picked up the phone, called people that I had either stayed in touch with or got back in touch with because of the story and said, hey, read this article. Is there someone like this at Rosemead? Um, and that eventually, actually rather quickly, led me to, to my journalism teacher. Um, but it was just this feeling of, you know, I, I, it was, it's hard to pin down. Um, but almost this feeling of, uh, I later felt, as I reported on the story for five years, this feeling of guilt and sort of complicity mm -hmm. for being part of the community that allowed this to happen. I, I didn't know when I was 17 years old what was going on, but there were some red flags. You know, he um, uh, had a, a child with a former student, and that was known. I mean, his son would come to school. We, mm -hmm. we knew the son, you know. Um, but it wasn't known the circumstances, you know, or, and, and some of it was, was rumor, and I didn't, you know. I, I, so when I started this, I really wanted to separate, obviously, as a reporter, you know, fact from fiction. And I think one of the driving things for me was just the feeling of, gosh, yeah, like, my whole community probably gave several people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, I've certainly reflected on this myself, and, you know, looking back on my high school career, you know, I was in high school from 81 to 85, and 
now having worked with educational professionals at PPI and districts around the country, the memories I have of what I observed during those four years, I know that there were things going on that just you didn't register. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think you have to be careful not to be too hard on yourself because our mm -hmm. frame of reference in high school is so different. Right. But boy, oh boy, looking right. back on it, it yeah. Well, and just the culture of that little fiefdom of that school. So at my school, the culture was such that girls could sit on teachers' laps in between classes. Well, it that's precisely a, a the example deal. I was thinking about, yeah. you know, yeah. honestly. Right, um, so right. I, yeah, you, that's, that's there's the a lot baseline. to process there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and let's let's put that aside for a moment. Not that we're going to stop thinking about it, but I think that the research you're doing for your new article is really fascinating, and so I'm hoping you can explore, explain what you're doing and why. Yeah, certainly. So, um, so, so yeah. Coming out of that first story, you know, a, a lot of people read it. It was clear to to my my editors that there's a lot of interest in this in this subject. There's been a lot of great work done on it already, but one of the things that stood out to me, we were talking about this um, uh, separation agreement, the secrecy aspect, and there's a lot to unpack there. And so uh, I, it sort of set me on this path of trying to explore how other states handle this, how other districts handle this. Is this just how, how non-disclosure agreements, which I think we all kind of collectively expect in a Harvey Weinstein, in a Hollywood situation, a Silicon Valley situation, a corporate situation, but I think a lot of folks, a lot of your listeners maybe wouldn't expect that in a public school setting involving sexual abuse, right? So, so how does this continue I, to happen? I bet that any regular educator listening to this probably would not even believe what a settlement, probably didn't even know what a settlement they, agreement was. They maybe haven't even seen one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah right. I, I bet they haven't. I bet they don't know that they exist. Right. But every, almost every time somebody gets fired, there's a settlement agreement that goes with it. Sometimes people get fired and get like the whole rest of the year's pay mm -hmm. and people don't know that either. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people get paid the rest of their contract, which could be multiple years. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, as I learned that, as I became more mature in being an educator, I was dumbfounded mm -hmm. and couldn't believe that people that we would, we would not trust around children, mm -hmm. we would trust to you know, give them all this money, say, don't tell anybody and just move on with your life. Right. Well, and this is one of the things that's interesting is that yeah. I've got past school board experience. Mm -hmm. So I come at it from that perspective mm -hmm. and having talked with board counsel about why a settlement agreement is the appropriate step. There's all of these different factors in terms of the privacy of the child, the challenge to the family of going through a legal process, the reputation of the school, all of these different factors. And whether we like it or not, each component has an economic value. Mm -hmm. Or an economic value can be assigned mm -hmm. to whatever concerns people have. And this lawyers are trained to do this. Mm -hmm. And I, I speak as a mm -hmm. <laughs> very happily, you know, non active attorney mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that um, yep. this is what attorneys are tasked with doing. You know full yep. well. And yeah. same with an insurance actuary or yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think part of it too is, is with those, all those educators who probably don't know that, we're, I'm not looking at the 99%. I'm looking at the less than 1% of teachers who are grooming and sexually abusing kids. And it, what's interesting about that is it can be an epidemic and still be less than 1%, mm -hmm. right? We have so many teachers that, so uh, of course, most people are not going to think that because they're never going to have an agreement like that. Their colleagues aren't going to have an agreement like that. They're not trying to hurt kids. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah. 
there's a disconnect there, I think, with the, 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 the common um, relationship to an agreement like that because it just does not come to most people's radar. Mm -hmm. And without picking on the media, to be fair, the media concentrates on the 1% of as course. opposed to the 99%. Right. You know, and numerically, even with the pandemic and everything, if we are talking 1%, we're talking still 30,000 potential offenders a year. Right. So it's an, a non-trivial number. But it doesn't right. compare to the 2,970,000 people who don't right. have problems like this. Right. And right. It, you know, just as human beings and as members of a media culture, we don't handle this well. Well, I think it's not really our job. So my job is to point out problems so that people like at this conference can come up with solutions. Mm. If you're doing a good job at your job, you don't need a gold star or high five from me. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I don't. I'm not. I'm not equipped to give you no, that. No, that's absolutely fair. I'm, absolutely right, fair. I, I'm here yeah. to point out and hold people accountable who are failing at the job, so that other people can then remedy it. Yeah. Um, that's my role. Yeah. So I have. We all have a little piece of this. So I. I actually think that. Well, I agree that. And like I mentioned, you know, the, the kind of cops and court story about these bad <laughs> teachers. Yeah. That is. That is. A lot of people have seen that. There's probably a lot of desensitivity because of that. But I also think, in, to a large degree, that's the media fulfilling that role of accountability. Yeah. So with respect to the the systemic analysis basically that you're doing across the country mm -hmm. um, number one how are you doing it and then yeah. secondly what are you hoping to show from it yeah so how i'm doing it um, is a couple ways we uh, published a, a what we call a, a call out which is just to say hey mad range is doing this thing here's his cell phone number get in touch you can yeah. um, be confidential if you'd like if you're a survivor that sort of thing um, and then number two chiefly at the moment um, am using my uh, background and expertise in public records and getting documents. So I'm, mm. as a result, at this point, focused on public schools where public records laws apply. Sure. So not private schools. Not charter. Right. Not no, a charter lot of should work. Charter, charter uh, is often included. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Because they're technically yeah, a public school. That's true. Yep. Good point. Um, I'm focused on the big ones. So mostly charters are not the big ones. Uh, the 10 biggest ones in all 50 states, um, D.C., Puerto Rico, um, uh, a few other two, a few others as well, where I've gotten tips that there are stories to be unearthed mm -hmm. that I should probably go look at. So it's I'm, I'm kind of at the stage of uh, relatively early on of uh, uh, a data and document collection to see what I can get and then analyze it. I have not started analyzing that uh, in depth yet, but what I can say is that um, uh, a lot, particularly with respect to the settlement separation agreements very cookie cutter, which would surprise no lawyer listening to this, um, <laughs> right? They all, you can tell, yeah. are influenced by one another, including the non-disclosure clauses. A lot of them look exactly the same. And so I'm looking at that, union involvement with that, questions around um, insurance, questions around, okay, if your premium is based in part on the number of claims, does that disincentivize claims from being existing in the first place? We have this great problem of mandated reporters not actually reporting everything they should, so how does that contribute? Um, the culture that can be fostered at a school of let's handle this internally, which mm -hmm. is often the case. Huge problem. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to kind of unpack all of those things. At the moment, though, I'm focused on just getting a bunch of examples of how districts have handled this bad behavior, how they've handled the less than 1%. And then I can kind of compare, okay, like, like just today I learned Nebraska, very different from California, where I'm coming from. Nebraska has... Um, Anybody can go, any listener can go look up right now on their, um, I, I shouldn't say the acronym for the, the, the state body because I don't remember it, but <laughs> on the state education body, you can go and look up and you can see not just like in California, okay, this person has had their um, credential revoked, but you can even see reprimands and the reason for the reprimand. Maybe hmm. it was like, I, I once somebody pulled one up for me earlier was um, the teacher had, a, had shown sexually explicit videos on YouTube. 
during the class. So you can see a little bit of what went wrong here. Right. Um, in California, I all I know is the teacher's uh, credentials are vote for misconduct. That's it. I don't, don't don't know anything more. Yeah. So there'll be some degree of comparing. Okay, what's what are some states doing, particularly with respect to pass the trash? Um, about 17 states have a pass the trash law in place. Is that helping? Is it, how could I measure that? Are this why don't the states who don't have it? Why don't they have it? Mm -hmm. Exploring those policy questions as well. Well, and I I think this is an appropriate place as we wrap up this interview to give a shout out to Nasdaq because they've been working on what they call the clearinghouse mm -hmm. for the last 20 years. And people or organizations or districts or states that join NASDAQ are able to log in, and it is a way to address the passing the trash issue because they're developing reporting requirements from the individual states or partnerships so that disciplinary actions are available across the country. Right. Much easier system to use. Right. Mm -hmm. The idea is you put yeah. in your information, you can access everyone else's. Exactly right. And, and actually, I had been pushing for a while to get them to code things better, but you do mm. run up against the state barriers. Like for instance, mm. some years ago I suggested, well, there should be a column for some reference to the types of technology mm. that are involved mm. or the specific apps that are involved just so we could catch trends. Mm. But then what you're really saying is you want each of the 50 jurisdictions to capture that information. Yeah. And I, <laughs> that was an utter non-starter. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, that's cute, Fred. Oh, but yeah. No, so, they didn't even say that's cute. Yeah. They just moved on. <laughs> anyway. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it would be good to have you come back on and talk more about this in the future because this is sure. something that I, I think a lot of people would be interested in the trends and what you're seeing, especially in large districts across the country and what what is happening. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to put the invitation out now yeah. that you can come back yeah. and talk yeah, happy and heart, again. Heartily again. seconded, uh, yeah. Matt. This is fascinating. We, oh, thank you. We could easily go another half hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to come back. Yeah, I think um, yeah, we're aiming to publish that story in probably the spring sometime. So. Okay. okay. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll shoot yeah. for that then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.